We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based journalist, Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. And tonight we'll be talking about recent polls asking about a China invasion and whether ROC forces have the ability to defend the island. Principles for a new southbound policy ties, the death of two police officers and the failure to adhere to labour laws, regulations for cryptocurrency and the latest Reporters Without Borders Asia rankings. But we'll begin with violent scenes outside the Legislative UN this Wednesday, where members of veterans groups protesting government plans to reform military pensions clashed with police. 84 police officers and 12 journalists were injured in the melee, and police arrested 63 of the protesters. Now, the violence has been condemned by President Tsai Ing-wen, who took to her Facebook page to say that those who resorted to violence cannot stand for patriotic members of the armed forces who are loyal to the country's citizens. The presidential office also condemned the outbreak of violence and vowed to continue with its pension reform policies, while Premier William Lai said that the cabinet could now lead legislative efforts to toughen penalties for assaulting police officers. Now, members of the 800 Warriors Veterans Group clashed with police while the Legislative Foreign Affairs and National Defence Committee was holding a public hearing on pension reform proposals. And the protest group on Thursday announced that it had suspended further demonstrations Demonstrations, saying that its sole aim was to seek the cancellation of a committee meeting. Now, the group's chief executive, Law Ray Da, apologised for the violence, and that's when he said that they've called a temporary halt to the protests. And according to Law, his group will now decide on its next step after reviewing the DPP and the presidential office's responses to recommendations being put forward by the Pension Reform Committee. So, Ross, they cancelled the protests, saying that their own their, their sole aim of the protests was to cancel this committee meeting. But I suspect maybe they decided to temporarily cancel the protests because they could see public support waning after those horrific scenes outside the Legislative UN. There are a number of factors at play here. The most important one is we cannot condone violence in, in, in the advance of one's uh, public policy goals. So completely inappropriate, as you mentioned, uh, completely uh, flops with, with the public, so it's no way to get public support. There's another important factor here, which is the DPP has a large majority in the legislature. The pension reform is going to pass. So uh, however upset these veterans might be, many of them, not all of them, uh, and the government has tried to make that clear, but many of them will lose or, or have a reduction in some of their benefits. It's coming. And, and no matter how vociferously they protest, uh, whatever means they use, whether it's parades or pushing and shoving, it's going to pass. The other factor here is the culture in Taiwan of uh, loud protests, which often do devolve into pushing and shoving, no matter what the issue. And we see that uh, across the political spectrum, whether it's for uh, saving uh, older buildings, environmental causes, uh, the, the protests against the proposed trade agreement with China in 2014, where students uh, stormed into and occupied not just the legislative UN, but the offices of the executive UN as well. Uh, so that's a culture here in Taiwan. Uh, fortunately, it usually doesn't exceed pushing and shoving, but it is wrong. And, and all sides of, of the political discussion in Taiwan need to recognize that 
that and condemn that. And unfortunately, what we often see is when it's your side who uh, is not the one involved, then it's easy to criticize the people who are involved. So we see now the DPP criticizing the veterans, and, and the veterans do deserve to be condemned for uh, violence. Uh, but uh, it's not that much different than uh, the Sunflower Movement also invading government buildings to, to achieve their policy goal uh, f- four years ago, uh, which was supported by the DPP. Yeah, I can't outdo Ross on that one. I think he, he sums it up really well. I would only add briefly that when the police closed off the parliament, I believe on Tuesday, I kind of think they overdid it. I've seen, I've been to parliament quite a number of times, and there's always some police presence out there. They have the barbed wire. Uh, this time was just over the top. They were they were all the way up to the um, you know the executive UN building and down to the the next block south of the parliament. You couldn't get in. The journalists weren't allowed to get in, uh, never mind the protesters. Um, perhaps there was a fear that because of their military background, they'd, they'd be especially aggressive, they might bear arms, or there, there must have been some additional calculation that went beyond what you normally see at a police barricade or at a protest. Um, the other thing is, I, in terms of public support, obviously people here don't widely condone any kind of violence. And I suspect that given the you know, low wages across the board in Taiwan, that a lot of people are, are not terribly sympathetic to public servants, including military people, when it comes to really large pensions. So as Ross said, this thing is going to go through, and I would imagine a lot of people out there are happy to see it go through. Ralph also brings up an important point, which uh, comes up again and again in these situations, uh, not just this past week, but when the gentleman from the 800 Warriors scaled a building a few months ago and and tragically fell off uh, last summer at the opening ceremony of the university games when these same groups were protesting. And and that's a question of police training uh, or the lack thereof. So the the enhanced presence that Ralph referred to uh, could have just been throwing more people there, right? More men, more women, more police officers. Uh, so just, uh, I wouldn't even call it a show of force. It's more just a show of quantity. Uh, so we'll just send more people there. But actually, we don't really know how to best manage these situations. And, and we just see that over and over again with, with uh, large events in Taiwan, uh, public protests, or even uh, outdoor events like the, the tragic dust fire at, at the amusement park, where, where public safety issues, you know, this lack of training and a lack of a culture to properly manage events uh, outdoors with large numbers of people. And it's something that police agencies in Taiwan and the civilian officials who oversee the police agencies uh, seem to have an opposition to improving. Well, Ralph, what about the call by Premier William Lai to strengthen or toughen penalties for people that assault police officers? Do you see this going through? It could. I don't think it's a real common thing that happens here. I'd probably go through and um, nobody would say anything about it. And, and also it, it wouldn't... be interesting, I suppose, especially in the context of the protests, but will it change life in Taiwan? Probably not. Do you think it's just a knee-jerk reaction? This is why the Premier came out with this comment. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it won't change 
the inability to manage these situations. So if, if the fine today is is X dollars for pushing a police officer and it gets raised uh, a few thousand more Taiwan dollars, it's, it doesn't address the fact that the, the police have great difficulty managing these situations, which really could be addressed with better training. Uh, agreed that the it's, it's hard to train when you don't know what's going to happen. I think that in, in defense of the uh, police units here, they don't always know what to expect. And as a reporter who's covered protests, um, I, I can say firsthand that a lot of different things can happen. You expect them to be violent, and they're not. You expect them to be big, and they're small. Small ones become big. Sometimes people come in off the street and say, wow, this is really cool. I, I'm going to join this one. And the police are unprepared for a bunch of people who um, apparently have nothing to do with the original protest movement. Um, so it's, it's hard to know, and I think over the years since the Sunflower occupation of Parliament, the police have been trying different things, but they usually go on the overkill side because that's just safe. It's good, safe um, policy to have more instead of less in case something does break out. But then, of course, the police are criticized for having too many police officers there or not enough police officers there. But that also goes to the training issue and specifically an intelligence capability, which is, you know, we think of intelligence as involving national security and spies going overseas and things like that. But it is very normal for a municipal police department to have an intelligence capability. And we especially see that in large cities around the world in the aftermath of 911 and subsequent terrorist incidents that continue up until the present in major cities, whether in the United States or, or Europe. Uh, the, the police are supposed to have that kind of capability, which would help them assess how large an event's going to be, what kind of objects people are, are going to be bringing to an event. Look, as I said, uh, fortunately here in Taiwan, we, with these kinds of events, there is no culture or history of, say, throwing Molotov cocktails. Uh, you know, there's pushing and shoving. There's air horns. Um, there's screaming. Um, but we, we don't have uh, a culture here of weapons. Fortunately, weapons are extremely difficult to get here in Taiwan. But again, we also don't see, have a culture of homemade weapons at these kinds of events either. Uh, but there, there is an important element of municipal policing, and that is intelligence. And, and again, it's something that I think the police here lack. Right, moving on now, and there were a couple of polls that made headlines here in Taiwan over the past couple of weeks. One of those polls asked if the public was willing to fight for democracy in the event of a Chinese attack, while the other poll asked if people believe that the island's armed forces are capable of defending Taiwan in the event of a China attack. Now, the first poll was released by the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy, and results found that 86% of young people support the democratic political system here, with 716 percent of those in the 20 to 39 age group saying that they will be fighting for Taiwan if China invades. And when asked if they would fight for Taiwan if Taiwan formally announced independence resulting in a China attack, well, 64.5 percent of the same age group said yes to that. However, pro-China groups are dismissing the poll, claiming that it was solely aimed at boosting support for Taiwan independence. Meanwhile, the other poll by the Taiwanese Public Opinion Foundation found that a majority of 
of people in Taiwan think that the island's armed forces does not have the capability to prevent an invasion by China. But they also said that they didn't think such an attack was very likely. Now, the poll found that 65.4% of respondents have no confidence in the country's defence against an attack by China, and 64.5% of respondents to that poll said they don't believe China's military will invade Taiwan anyway. Now, as to whether the United States is likely to send troops to help defend Taiwan in the event of an attack by Beijing, well, 47.4% of respondents there said they are confident of such support, while 41% expressed doubt about any military assistance from Washington. Ralph, you saw the polls? Did you read anything into them? Did they mean anything to you? And did they really cover people's opinions in Taiwan? I don't hear anything really surprising. It's good to know that so many people would, in fact, go and fight,、uh, especially if Taiwan is moving in the direction of non-compulsory military service. As far as whether Taiwan can defend itself, it probably depends largely on what kind of an attack comes. And it's an old, old, old debate about how China would, in fact, hit,、uh, attack Taiwan if it was going to do so. There's the West Coast argument, the East Coast argument, the cyber warfare, the The surgical strikes, and、um, you know, you've probably heard it all before. So, how Taiwan and how effectively Taiwan would would respond would hinge on how it was attacked. I'm sure you've seen the、um, comparisons of weaponry and numbers of people who are able to fight. And of course, China has this huge advantage based on technology, based on its enormous population. So, one presumes at the end of the day that、um, China would. Would win a conventional war.、Um, I don't think there's too much debate about that. Well, one of the problems with this poll, or the, the question that got the most attention, and the the high number of responses from young people saying they would defend Taiwan if Taiwan was attacked, is、uh, this kind of question. The the、uh, Recipient of the phone call might be afraid of a social judgment, and in that regard, it's not different than the concerns about polling questions during the U.S. presidential election in 2016, where people might have been reluctant to say, "I support Donald Trump" because they didn't want the person on the other end of the call to criticize them. So, when you get a phone call saying, "Oh, well, would you defend Taiwan?" Obviously, most people would answer that question with "Yes." The, you're, you're calling Taiwanese people who live here,、uh, who love Taiwan and have a strong connection to Taiwan. So, of course, they're going to say, "I'll defend Taiwan." But Ralph alluded to the movement to a、uh, volunteer military service, and then the numbers, the data、uh, v- from that. Is it's completely inconsistent with the poll. So we know that the the military has had extraordinary, and that's probably under, an understatement, an extraordinary difficult uh, time uh, finding people who are willing to serve. And lowering the pensions probably doesn't help.、Uh, just as a matter of、uh, compensation and whether it's attractive to become a career military officer or or non commissioned officer,、uh, but. We, the the two facts are inconsistent, so it's easy to answer a poll question. Say, oh yeah, sure, I'll defend Taiwan. Very few people are probably saying, "Hell no, I won't do that."、Uh, but we we see the reality is quite disconnected from that poll result, and that reality is that young people do not want to serve in the military. What about the other question? I mean, you, you're both Americans. The question about whether the United States would. Involve itself in a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, Ralph. As we know, we can't depend on it. The laws in out of Washington don't require 
the United States to help in any way, although they allow China, uh, the United States to do so if it, if it feels like it. I suspect that the United States would do something, um, but probably not as much as Taiwan would like. And perhaps the real role of the, of the U.S. military and the Taiwan Relations Act and other such things is not really as much for actual on-the-ground defense as it is to deter China from making any such attack. It's obviously speculative, and it behooves the leadership in Taiwan, both the elected civilian leadership as well as the military leadership, to plan appropriately, to plan the various scenarios, which could include uh, actual boots-on-the-ground kind of assistance from the United States or, or just support in, in, in the form of uh, shipment of weapons and material in the event hostilities break out. Uh, Taiwan should also plan for the assistance of Japan or the lack thereof. It should plan for the U.S. ability to dispatch troops and or material from Okinawa and Japan or the ability or the lack of the United States to do that because Japan says, no, we do not want to get involved. And that would cause a delay as the United States would have to dispatch troops and, and material from further away, such as Guam or Pearl Harbor or even the, the mainland United States. All, that, all of that will take time. So it's really up to Taiwan to plan for all scenarios. And the interesting thing there is, okay, so you have this poll asking that question, but where is the civilian and political, I'm sorry, civilian and military leadership here in Taiwan, they should be out in, in talking to the public and saying, here's what we got to do for national defense. And we cannot depend on the United States. It would be great if they helped us, but we have to do this on our own. That's why uh, young people, it would be great if you did volunteer for the military. Uh, so uh, the, this culture uh, is lacking uh, from the leadership here where, where they are out uh, selling, explaining the need for stronger national defense and the participation of the population as a whole in that effort. Yeah, Ross uh, raises a good point about recruitment. As, a, as an American, I can remember growing up and having Army and Navy recruiters come to high school and try to meet with senior with boys who were a year or two from graduating and get us to go into the military, which I never did. Um, but that's um, that's perhaps a difference between Taiwan. I'm not sure if that takes place. One reason may be because the military over the past few years has been trying to use high technology, homegrown weapons, and other non-personnel related stuff to prepare uh, its defense instead of using lots and lots of people. Well, here in Taiwan, the, the movement has been to get the military out of the campus. So there used to be military officers in, in high schools and in universities. They had a, a, a role in kind of training, giving some people some, some initial introduction to uh, weaponry, marching, things of that nature, but also a disciplinary role, kind of what in America we would call a dean, um, you know, someone who, who disciplines students when they misbehave. Uh, but over the last few years, because of the association with the uh, martial law party state era, the movement has been to get these people out of school. So they have a bad image in the school context. And again, it's, it's a totality uh, of circumstances that the, the military is not seen in a, as an attractive path. And, and that's why there really is a great disconnect between the poll results and the reality. 
Right, let's move away from violent protests and war, and we'll talk about the new southbound policy, which of course is not that new anymore. It's a couple of years old, but it made the news this week when the Premier talked up the government's policy towards the southbound policy, if you can say that, and saying that it plans to promote reciprocal multifaceted relations with countries being targeted under the policy on the basis of what the Premier called win-win principles. Now, whatever win-win principles are, I don't know, but according to the Premier, the government will continue to help ensure Taiwanese businesses receive opportunities to invest and resolve difficulties in countries covered by the new southbound policy through diplomatic, parliamentary and non-governmental channels. And he's also urging government agencies to sign investment guarantee accords and bilateral taxation agreements with countries covered by the new southbound policy. And if you're interested, here's a fact. In fact, trade between Taiwan and new southbound policy countries stood at 111 billion US dollars last year and the government said that that represents annual growth of 15%. So of course Ross we had lots to talk about when the new southbound policy was new but where is it now do you think? Probably not much different uh, than if the government hadn't called uh, this a new southbound policy and it just proceeded with the diplomatic efforts and trade-related cultural people exchange efforts that previous governments in Taiwan had done. Obviously, Chen Shui-bian and Li Donghui had put a label on their efforts with regard to the mostly the same group of countries. Mind Zhou, not so much. But we shouldn't read that or take that to mean that the Ma government didn't pursue uh, again, diplomatic trade relations. When I say diplomatic, I mean, you know, to the extent that the countries interact with Taiwan on a government-to-government basis. Uh, certainly, the Ma government pursued this as well. It's a complete fallacy to say that President Ma and his government did not seek to improve trade and, and non-official ties with Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and India. In fact, Ma Zhou stopped over in India when he was on an overseas trip and there was an increase in the number of uh, Taiwan representative offices in India during the Ma government. Uh, so to say that Southeast Asia was ignored, that that's not true. So to go back to your, your point, Gavin, uh, these things probably would have happened anyway. Uh, and that's the risk of putting a great label on it, because ultimately we're going to hit a wall where there won't be any more that could be done. And that includes things like signing trade agreements. The investment protection agreement, uh, people misunderstand what those really mean. They generally don't mean much other than uh, you won't be treated any worse than the investors of other countries, and the government will pay you compensation if your assets are confiscated, which generally is pretty rare nowadays. You know, the government's not going to confiscate a factory uh, owned by a foreign investor in Thailand or the Philippines. Very, very rare. These are not trade agreements. They are not market access agreements. Uh, so, yeah, maybe the governments in Southeast Asia might sign those. The Philippines, uh, at the end of last year, uh, re-signed the one that it had in Taiwan, with Taiwan. Uh, but uh, other than that, I think we're going to hit a wall pretty soon. And then that there, you open yourself up to criticism that the policy really wasn't that big a deal. Ralph? The beauty of the new southbound policy over the last couple of years, I think, is that it's non Binding. There are no targets. There are no obligations on the part of the Taiwan government, business people, or the other countries involved. The 
so we can never really point to it and say it failed. Um, the policy doesn't actually ask anybody to leave China, which is sort of the, the other side of it that's not discussed as often. Um, the, um, I, I think in the end of the day, it's good that the government is experimenting with different kinds of proposals with the other countries, things that they can do without having formal diplomatic relations, which it doesn't have with any of these. The real key is to motivate the entrepreneurs, the Taiwanese business people, to go to those places. If they can, if the government can help open a door in the Philippines or in Indonesia or in India, uh, the entrepreneurs, the business people will go and, and occupy that. Um, and to some extent, as Ross pointed out, that was happening already. You can see uh, lots of Taiwanese investors in Vietnam, for example. And if the government here can pry open the same level of access to some of these other markets, I'm sure that the investors here would go, would do it, and then the government can turn around and say, hey, the policy's working. Well, one interesting thing about that is in the first few months of the Thai administration in 2016, when this policy was announced, initially and publicly, President Tsai said the focus of this policy is on people-to-people -people ties, cultural exchange, uh, encouraging more students from those target countries to study in Taiwan so they could go back to their countries with warm feelings about Taiwan. She said the focus would not be on business. And then the business people were, were kind of skeptical then, well, okay, nothing to do with us. Uh, and then the government kind of changed its position and became more outspoken in saying this policy is to help Taiwanese companies go overseas uh, to the southbound countries. Now, the risk there is if the government is seen as encouraging Taiwan companies to invest and put their money in Vietnam or Thailand, Philippines, etc., that means those companies might not be investing as much money here at home in Taiwan and creating jobs or increasing salaries here in Taiwan. Uh, so that's a big struggle for the government still. They, they, I think they are reluctant in many ways to be seen as encouraging Taiwan companies to put their money outside of Taiwan. And there's another interesting aspect. This is Ralph, Ralph mentioned that Taiwan companies have been in the, some of these countries. In fact, they've been there for many years. And I've spoken with Taiwanese business people with a lot of experience, with a lot of money invested for a long time in these countries. And they kind of said, you know, we don't want too many more Taiwan companies coming here. I'm pretty happy with what I have in Thailand or the Philippines. I have my niche. Uh, I, I don't want that taken away. Uh, so that, that's another interesting aspect to this conversation. Right, now we have to take a short break, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and a horrific traffic accident on the Sun Yat-sen freeway that left three people, including two police officers, dead has raised questions about the enforcement of the government's newest labour laws. Now, the police were on the hard shoulder when the accident happened after pulling over a truck driver who was driving illegally on the freeway while the other truck drove behind them, rammed into their police car and instantly killed them. Um, sad story and very horrific. But what made it worse was the fact that the driver of the 
truck that caused the accident has admitted to having fallen asleep at the wheel and accidentally swerved into the hard shoulder. And an investigation by Labour Affairs Bureau officials found that the driver had in fact worked 22 days straight in April, had worked more than the 12-hour daily limit on seven of those days and exceeded the maximum 46 hours of overtime allowed per month. Well, there you go, Ross. So new labour laws that aren't being adhered to. No surprise, uh, especially in in blue-collar type of jobs. It's not often the fault or the wrongdoing of the employer. Sometimes the employee is a willing participant because they want to make more money. Uh, So it's no surprise that these incidents do occur. Uh, It's probably too much to expect technology to be installed in in vehicles that would prevent this, at least at this stage, Uh, although technologies do exist to make uh, at least long-haul truck, uh, multi-wheel tractor-trailer is more safe to operate. Um, But uh, there's also this issue of police training, which we discussed earlier about uh, how to safely park on a shoulder when when there is a need for police assistance by a motorist. Uh, So we have all these factors involved, some of which are, or many of which uh, actually are able to be addressed if there is a will to address them. Ralph, of course, we went through this big stink, of course, of amendments to labour laws. Then we had the amendments to the amendments to labour laws. And this horrific accident already showed that companies are just not adhering to labour laws, whatever the labour laws are. Well, Taiwan is full of people who don't follow laws. There are lots of corner cutters. There are plenty of companies and individuals within the companies that either don't know what the law is or they do and they don't care and they know nobody's going to enforce it. Um, we saw this... Um, overwork I issue, I believe, last year when a tour bus coming back from the east coast somewhere crashed in Taipei and killed something like 32 or 33 people who were on board. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that the driver in that case was found to be working too, too many hours or too many days. And I seem also to recall that one of the two Transasia Airways crashes was due in part to a pilot uh, working perhaps more than he should have. So it's an old issue with a new a new manifestation. I'm sure people will call on the government to do something, and maybe they will take some kind of symbolic action of the sort that we talked about earlier in this conversation um, to make it appear that they've done something tougher. Um, but I suspect that the issues of overwork and overtime will 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 uh, persist here. The company that employed the truck driver that caused the accident has been fined 3 million NT for work hour and rest time violations. Well, that's not going to bring back the deceased, uh, and it's probably not a deterrent to other companies in that industry uh, who are um, asking their drivers to work to the point where the drivers are exhausted. Uh, It's going to continue to happen, unfortunately. Uh, So I think the better solution is not just to look at fining employers, but it really involves technology and or police training. These things happen all over the world. Cars, even on a clear day, a sober, awake driver, unfortunately, sometimes will crash into cars, police that are parked on a shoulder of a highway. The best solution here really would be training and, and getting the, the disabled vehicle and the police off the shoulder as quickly as possible. 
And, of course, the Minister of the Interior this week, after the accident happened, did say that they are now going to look at new technology to help policing and also help transport companies. Anyway, we shall move on from that. Now we'll move on to cryptocurrencies. Yes, Bitcoin was in the news this week, and the government of course, is planning to announce new regulations governing cryptocurrencies sometime this year. And Justice Minister Cho Tai-san has said that his office is hoping to set up control mechanisms for cryptocurrencies by November and that the planned regulations will prevent cryptocurrencies from being used for money laundering purposes, which, of course, Ross, was one of the big stepping blocks to the government originally allowing these currencies to become legal tender of sorts. Well, for those of us who have some experience in the crypto currency industry and or familiar with fintech i i was uh speaking at a conference this week in taipei on this very topic which was attended by industry leaders visitors from overseas who are involved in the industry in hong kong or singapore and a lot of people attended the seminar that i was at simply because they are either already involved they trade the currencies or they are interested in learning more i'll tell you there was one consensus which is more government regulation is not good. And if you think about how this currency and the, the increasing number of currencies spread in popularity, it's because it was a way to, uh, I wouldn't say avoid, but to op open up a different channel from the traditional currency and banking systems. And what you just quoted, Gavin, won't be popular with the users or the investors uh, of cryptocurrencies. And frankly, it won't address the concerns that government seems to have. Uh, so people in Taiwan could go online and trade those currencies now. Now, it might be a little difficult for uh, us to use it in a transaction in Taiwan. It might be difficult for me to pay you, Gavin, uh, in cryptocurrency directly here in Taiwan. But if we both have cryptocurrency wallets uh, in cyberspace, I can pay you anyway, even though we both live here in Taiwan. So uh, there is a definite concern among industry participants that what they're talking about at the government level is going to be extremely counterproductive. And one of the great dangers here, and we have to be very frank, most of the people involved in this uh, at the government level, in the Ministry of Just Justice or the Financial Supervisory Commission or the Central Bank, lack experience or knowledge about these things. Yeah, they could bring in some experts, and there's a minister without portfolio. She's well known for her interest and knowledge of things cyber, but there's been some disappointment as well in her ability to uh, implement change that keeps up with the 21st century. Uh, so there, there's a real risk here of bad ideas being made by people who uh, just don't understand the industry. So Ralph, I mean, are you buying Bitcoin? I'd like to. I'm thinking about trying to make a, some kind of investment just to see how it works. I'm really intrigued by it. And I, I think Taiwan, like a lot of other parts of Asia, has a growing number of entrepreneurs who are learning how to use cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, for investments, for actual trade and commerce. Um, there are also entrepreneurs who will use the blockchain technology behind it, the, the public ledger, to do more, to make things safer. Uh, for those transactions, Taiwan, like everybody else, does need to regulate it. Um, and I think you can see other cases around Asia, like Singapore and Japan, which are probably the leaders in crypto these days, they have also regulated it. 
but at the same time, they encourage it. And that's the balance that Taiwan perhaps will try to strike, uh, being um, an island that is uh, technically advanced, uh, technologically advanced, got the talent, it's got the, uh, the, 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 the will among business people to do something. So um, regulation for prevention of crime is certainly something that they should be pursuing here. And at the same time, they should be saying, hey, as long as you're not criminals, um, then please go on and develop cryptocurrency because it's good for everybody. But the regulation, uh, the proper regulation, is not only should it have clarity, which often um, new regulations in the financial product space in Taiwan lacks, uh, but it, it, it should be clear what we're trying to regulate. So I'll give you, give you an example. Uh, initial coin offerings. There's increased regulation nowadays in many jurisdictions because you're, you're offering a new product to the public, almost like offering new shares. It's like a securities offering. And, and there might be some logic there to say, okay, we need to restrict the, the or have some qualifications for the people who could buy into initial coin offering because it's extremely speculative. So it's a very risky uh, investment. Uh, it, it, and there's some logic there. There might be some logic to uh, having some KYC, know your customer, AML, anti-money laundering controls uh, or requirements for companies that are offering opening up a wallet here onshore in Taiwan. So, Gavin, if you, if there was a company that that was offering to let you open up an account in Taiwan that's sitting on a server in Taiwan. Maybe they should have a requirement to collect your ID uh, and a ask you to answer some questions like, are you going to use this for criminal purposes? And you could say, no, I won't. Uh, and, and that would be some basic know your customer and anti-money laundering. Um, that would have some logic to it. Although, again, you could just open up an account right now today with a wallet that's sitting on a website server outside Taiwan. So th that might not serve much of a purpose. Uh, but the danger is regulating the transactional level, right, and, and trying to regulate a, a transaction where I pay you with cryptocurrency, Gavin, and I think that's a great danger here. Yeah, it would be paying me in cryptocurrency because I don't have to use the interweb, which I'm a bit of a Luddite about. Anyway, before we go, Taiwan has the best press freedom in Asia. Well, that according to the World Press Freedom Index, and Taiwan moved up three notches to 42nd place this year. Now, the index is compiled by Reporters Without Borders, and it measures the level of media freedom in 180 countries. So there you go, Ralph, you're a reporter. Good news. Yeah, it is, and I'm... I'm, I know that Taiwan has been fairly high in RSF's Asia rankings for a number of years, and it's a well-deserved ranking. I've done reporting in, in China, which is uh, one of the worst countries, and I can see why, having, having gone over there to cover things. Reporters are relatively safe here. They uh, have access to the government without too much ado in reaching the people they need to talk to. Um, and um, the people who we speak to have complete freedom to say what they want. So it has every, every hallmark of a, of a place that, that values press freedom and, and other kinds of media freedom. And I'm certainly grateful for RSF to been putting together those rankings to prove it.
Right, of course, Reporters Without Borders did say that the main threat to media freedom in Taiwan comes from China. And it went on to say that Beijing has been exerting economic and political pressure on Taiwan's media, and that has led to the editorial line of some privately owned media companies taking a line very similar to the Chinese party's propaganda. Well, consumers can simply not read those media if they don't like it. So if those surveys we were talking about earlier in the program are accurate and accurately reflects the negative feelings towards China, which would be very justified given China's behavior towards Taiwan, then people, the public, should not read those media or not, don't watch those TV shows. And because Taiwan has such an open media environment, there are plenty of alternatives that don't reflect the official China line and uh, are critical of China. Uh, are critical of the government as well, the government here in Taiwan, and that's normal in an open media environment and in a democracy. But I think we need to be a little cautious. Uh, comparing against other countries in Asia, I'm not sure what the relevance of that is. This is not a race. The, the baseline here is the world. It's a global ranking. And it's not uh, a ranking only against other countries in Asia. So what, why is it uh, important that Taiwan ranks higher than uh, Malaysia or Thailand or the Philippines as opposed to ranking higher or lower than countries in other parts of the world? I think there's, there's a tendency here in Taiwan to do that, to compare against Asia across a range of metrics when it doesn't really prove anything in either a positive or a negative way. So I think we need to be careful about that. And then uh, I, I would be cautious about celebrating being ranked 42nd in, in anything. I mean, I, I think I finished 42nd in my uh, university class or high school class and, you know, didn't uh, make me into such a successful person just because I finished 42nd. I would think that any influence from China is probably applied at the commercial level. In other words, these newspapers that are based here, they also send people to Beijing and sometimes other parts of, of China for news coverage. And some of them, and I, you probably know who I'm referring to, have other business obligations in China. Uh, they sell other things to the market there. So those media outlets are going to be pressured, um, if not externally, then just simply by their own management to cover China in a, in a fairly sympathetic way. And that's probably what RSF is referring to. And that's where we'll leave it this week, and I'll leave it to the listeners there to find out for themselves what companies Ralph was talking about. And I've been joined in the studio today on Taiwan This Week by Ross Feingold. Good night. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.